At Woodside Bible Church, we gather weekly to pursue God by studying His Word together. How can Christians find the motivation necessary to overcome the challenges of our modern culture and continue the mission that God has called us to? In Revelation, All Things New, we'll discover a glorious description of the end of all things and the great kingdom to come. It's here we find motivation for our present challenges. Join us as we look to the end and find hope and strength for our mission in the present. Always privilege every time we get a chance to open up the Word of God together. So I hope you have your Bibles because today I get a chance to launch us out into a new series. And this new series is on one of the most intriguing books of the entire Bible. I'm talking about the book of Revelation. I want you to open your Bible in particular to Revelation 19. Now, before we go into the book of Revelation deeply or our text for the day, let me just set the stage of what it is we hope to accomplish. You know, Revelation is a picture of heaven. It really is the story of the ultimate conquest of God and what we have promised for our future. You know, if I had to sum it up this way, I would say that Revelation is a future picture of a fulfilled promise. Throughout the Old Testament, God made promises, covenantal promises to men like Abraham and Moses and David and and others, and by extension to the people of God more broadly. And these covenantal promises foretold of a Messiah who would come and he would ultimately conquer all of the enemies of God. And it is uh, something that Israel's hope was based off of. But as you look at those covenantal promises, one of the things we also have to make sure we're mindful of is that Israel and humanity more broadly, in our short-sightedness, oftentimes all Israel's thought about or heard was the, the political conquest of God. They thought about the Messiah coming and changing their political, their geopolitical fortunes. But what they didn't recognize is that prior to that, what the Messiah would do is conquer the enemies of sin, death, hell, and the grave. And that's what we just celebrated when we came together during Easter weekend, the fact that the finished work of the cross literally stripped death and sin of its power and allows us to have access to a relationship with God. It literally cancels our sin debt. And the resurrection is the outward and public proclamation of the victory of the cross. But ultimately, in the end, he also does make all things new in heaven and on earth. As a matter of fact, that's what it says in Revelation 21 and 5, that the future picture that we get to look forward to is a new heaven and a new earth, God's finished redemptive plan where there will be no more power of sin and death, but also no more presence of sin and death. But it begs a question, what type of book is Revelation? One of the things that makes this book so complex is it has different types of writing styles in it. And without getting too deep into that, I will say the dominant category of writing style of literature that Revelation is, it's what's known as end-time prophecy or apocalyptic literature, or to use the theological term, eschatology, the focus on God's promises for end times. 
But why does God give us these prophecies in the first place? Well, 1 Corinthians 14 and 3 tells us he gives us these prophecies for three reasons. One is so that we might be built up for our own upbuilding, the maturing of our faith. Secondly, so that we might be encouraged, richly encouraged today about what God promises for that day. And then thirdly, for our consolation or our peace. All of that, I would sum up in two words, for biblical hope. God wants us to walk through this world not with a nervousness or a fearfulness or an anxiety about what tomorrow holds, but he tells us about tomorrow so that we can have peace and an unshakable hope today. Listen to these words from uh, the mouth of Jesus recorded in John chapter 16, verse 23. He says this, I have told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Now our biblical hope that comes from the study of future things, that comes from the study of end time prophecy is grounded in the victory of Jesus. And that's what this series is going to help us to see. It's going to help us to see that because of the victory of Jesus, God has promised us a future hope. Now, we live in a particular time of the in-between, the already but not yet. That future hope has not been fully actualized, and that's a good thing, though it has been inaugurated. Now, you may say, Pastor Chris, why is it a good thing that it hasn't been fully actualized? It's a good thing because we still have family, friends, neighbors, and loved ones that have yet to come to Christ. And so if we were living in the full actualization of the end of the presence of death and sin, then that means that our neighbors, our friends, our loved ones who are yet to come to faith in Christ will be left out of those promises. But the good news is there is still time. We are still in this in-between stage of already not yet, this dispensation of grace, the church age where God has given the church a powerful mission. We're going to talk about this mission, but ultimately our goal, our heartbeat has to be to invite men and women, those that we love, into new life in Christ so that they can be a part of the all things new redemptive work that God is doing in the earth. The church acts as ambassadors for God's mission in the world. And so today we're gonna look at a future celebration that takes place in Revelation 19. And this future celebration is designed to give us hope, to get us excited, and to remind us of the mission of the church. And the mission of the church, as we're going to see in this beautiful passage, is to spread the praise of God to our neighbors and to the nations. That's what we're called to do as a family. Now, I want to take you back to my wedding day, because we're going to look at a wedding feast in just a moment. But I remember leading up to my wedding day, my wife and I were in premarital counseling. We had a lot of it. I needed a lot of it. We were young. We were only 20. Now that I'm a little bit older, I got a 16-year-old daughter, and I think if she ever came to me at 20, 
and told me she found the one I would send her to counseling to. So my parents were wise to do that. But while we were in counseling, our counselor encouraged us to come up with a family mission statement. Maybe you've done this before. Maybe you've created a family mission statement. The Brooks family stands for these values, and we have been called by God to accomplish these things. Now, our mission statement was grounded in 1 Corinthians 10, 31, which says whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all to the glory of God. And that has been the driving force for me, my wife, our children, and hopefully in the future, our grandchildren and even beyond. But what is the church's family mission statement? I'm going to argue that the church's mission statement is that we are called to spread the praise of God to our neighbors and to the nations. We are called to invite others to praise God. Let us think about what we did this morning. You think about it for just a moment. We just finish singing songs of praise and adoration about how great our God is. We just got through reminding ourselves of his goodness and his mercy, and we are right to do so. I don't know about you, but whenever I'm having a bad week, I remind myself that Sunday's on the way. And when I get to Sunday, I'm going to be able to praise God with my brothers and sisters and be reminded of the hope we have again in the victory of Jesus. Man, what a blessing it is to be able to praise God. Sometimes I don't wait till Sunday. Sometimes I'm praising God all by myself. And if you ever drive down the street and you see Pastor Brooks in the car next to you and you see me having my own praise service in my car, don't laugh at me. Sometimes I just meditate on the goodness of God and it doesn't make a difference if I'm in my vehicle, in my kitchen, or in a worship center. I think God is worthy of the praise. And there's something powerful that happens when we worship God. We are announcing to the world that Satan is defeated, that Jesus is exalted. We are reminding ourselves of the victory we have because of our union with Christ. And it transforms us. It not only glorifies God, but it transforms us as well. And I want you to also think about this for a moment. There are places in our neighborhoods where people aren't worshiping God. There are places in the nations where people aren't worshiping God. Think about that for a moment. There are places in this fallen world where people are facing devastation and starvation and famine and war and corruption and cruelty and all of the things that our souls are vexed by and overwhelmed by. But unlike us, they don't have an eternal hope. And see, this is what God wants to change. Wherever there is not worship of our great God, God wants us as his family to embrace the mission of spreading the praise of God to places where he's not currently praised. There are people groups that aren't currently reached for Jesus, and we need to see those places as places we need to go so we can spread the praise of God. There are, there are homes within our neighborhoods where families aren't praising God, and we need to see that as our mission, that in that place, that they should be praising Jesus. They should know about his goodness and grace and his offer of salvation because knowing those things provokes us to praise and it transforms us and it glorifies him. It should not be 
comfortable for us to think about places where he is not praised and, and we sit back and not be moved by that. No, we should be moved to spread the praise of God to our neighbors and to the nations. But here's the question. Why should our neighbors and the nations praise him? Well, I'm glad you asked. And in Revelation 19, what we're going to see is that there's three reasons, three reasons why we, our neighbors and the nations should praise God. Let's look at the first reason, and it really centers on the character of God, that we should praise him for his character. Look at what it says in verse number one. After this, I heard what seemed to be the loud voice of a great multitude in heaven crying out, hallelujah, salvation and glory and power belong to our God for his judgments are true and just. One commentator calls this passage of scripture we're going to be looking at today, the hallelujah chorus. It is full of hallelujahs. It is full of praise. And notice that that praise starts in heaven and, it's, and it descends down to earth. Heaven starts this praise. The, the writer here, John, the apostle who was on the Isle of Patmos, exiled, and he's visited by angels and given these visions of heaven. And he, as much as he can, uh, pens this book for us, a prophecy that, that centers on Jesus, that tells us about the future victory and the all things new moment that is coming, the, the future fulfillment, the full actualiza actualization of the covenantal promises of God. And he says that in light of this, a loud voice of a great multitude in heaven are crying out. And they're crying out in praise and in worship. Now, it's hard to know who is all included in this, uh, but we got to assume that the angels are included in, this heavenly, in these heavenly hosts. The four beasts that were mentioned earlier in this book are included in that. But it, is, it descends down to earth. And there's this great cry of hallelujah. There's a time that's coming where the whole earth is going to praise God. Here's the good news. We don't have to wait. We can praise God right now. But why are they, they praising him? Well, the first reason, it's because of his character, his attributes. Notice what John says. He deserves a hallelujah. Why? Because salvation and glory and power belong to our God. These are his unique attributes. Only God is omnipotent, having all power. Only God is arrayed in full glory. Only God owns salvation. He is the only one who can save, and praise God, he does. He didn't have to save us. When the angels rebelled against God, he didn't offer them salvation, but Jesus comes as the sinless lamb into the world, paying the price of our sin, covering the debt that we could not pay. We were crushed under the weight of our sin, but our God brought us salvation. And because of this, he is worthy of the hallelujah. This is John's way of saying our God is great, that our God is great in his power, that our God is great in his sovereignty, that over every square inch of created order, Christ declares mine. 
that every foe that comes against him must bow the knee, that ultimately angels and men and all of creation are going to give him praise because there is no God like our God. He is in a category all by himself. He is worthy of our praise because he is great. But he doesn't stop there. He shares two more attributes surrounding God's judgment. Now, this is important because the two previous chapters, we're going to see this in a moment, were judgment chapters where God executes his judgments against the world that sins against him, against the nations that rebel against him. But here's what John writes as he's uh, given this vision from the angel. He says, for his judgments are true and just. In other words, not only is he great, but he's good. That everything he does is right. Everything he does is good and for our good. Even when God judges, even in his evaluations of us, even in his correction of us, he is good. When he judges sin in the world, when he blesses us in blessing and judgment and all of it, he is worthy of the praise because our God is good. And I love that. And hopefully you know that there's a day that's coming where we are going to be able to look back and say, God, you were good. You know, I think about my kids. There's a lot of times when my kids and I are are riding someplace and they'll say, Dad, I'm hungry. Can you get me some food? And I'll say, okay, just be patient. We're going to get to where we're going. And sometimes when they're really snarky, uh, they uh, they might pipe up and say, Dad, I'm starving. And I might respond, have I ever let you starve? And they might respond, yes, you have let us starve before. If you're a parent, you've been through this with your kids. But what am I looking for for my kids? I'm looking for them to trust me that there's a future promise that's coming in which they're going to be able to look back and say, if I was only just patient, I would have known that my dad was going to take care of me. There's a day, friends, that's coming. And that's why God has John, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, pinned this passage to remind us, be patient right now, worship right now, have hope right now, because our God has not forsaken us. He is good, and we're going to see the goodness of our God. So why wait to praise him? Praise him now, for he is great in power. He is good in nature. Our God is worthy of the hallelujah. But he doesn't stop there. He goes on it from there to tell us that God is worthy of our praise, not just because of his character, but we should praise him because of his conquest, because of his conquest, his, his, his conquering of his enemies. Look at how John writes it as we finish out verse number two and continue on. It says, for he has judged the great prostitute who corrupted the earth with her immorality and has avenged on her the blood of his servants. Once more, they cried out, hallelujah. Again, here goes another hallelujah of praise. They cried out, hallelujah. The smoke from her goes up forever and ever. And the 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshiped God who, sit, who was seated on the throne saying, amen, hallelujah. And from the throne came a voice saying, praise our God, all you his servants, 
you who feared him small and great. Again, another worship moment has broken out in heaven and it it descends to earth and and they're they're celebrating, saying the hallelujah, inviting the world to praise our God. But this time it's because he conquers. It's because he defeated what's known here as the great prostitute or what's known in chapter 17 and 18 as the great Babylon. Now this prostitute is not a person It is actually the corrupt world system that the nations have embraced that reject the will of God, that reject the authority of God. Just like us, the original audience or recipients of this book of prophecy lived in a fallen and corrupt world. They saw judges who were corrupt. They saw leaders who were corrupt. They saw a world that prostituted itself for pleasure. And all of this was influenced uh, by Satan, who the Bible describes as the God of this world, that he uh, for a season influences the heart of men. And they who decide to rebel against God and not trust in Jesus are given over to corruption. I want you to just look at this for just a moment with me. Go back to Revelation chapter 17. In Revelation chapter 17, listen to the first two verses. It says, Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and said to me, Come, I will show you the judgment of the great prostitute who is seated on many waters, with whom the kings of the earth have committed sexual immorality, and with the wine of whose sexual immorality the dwellers on earth have become drunk. Think about this. This is what the world system influenced by Satan has done to the kings, the mighty leaders of this world. A prostitute always charges a price in exchange for the fulfillment of our lust. And this is what Satan does. Whenever we decide we want to fulfill our lust and our desires in an ungodly, unholy way, Satan charges us a price. And how many of us right now are paying a price for the pursuit of our lust? For some, the price that they have paid has been the loss of their family for a moment of pleasure. For others, it is the loss of peace and the pursuit of worldly appetites. For others, it's the forsaking of God's purpose and plan for your life, all because you've decided to follow the God of this world instead of following the King of kings and Lord of lords. This is this great world system that has been oppressing men, this this lustful system that we see expressed through movies and music and television that tells us, just do you and, and pursue you and and do what makes you happy. But what it doesn't tell us is the great prostitute of this world, this world fallen system charges us a price that we can't afford to pay. Look at Revelation 18, just one chapter over. And it says this, after this, I saw another angel come down from heaven, having great authority and and the earth was made bright with his glory. And he called with a mighty voice, fallen, 
fallen is Babylon the Great. Now you think about this announcement that Babylon is fallen. Why is that such a glorious announcement? Well, because of 1824. Look at chapter 18, verse 24, really quickly with me. And it says, and in her, referring to Babylon or this great prostitute, this world system that's fallen, in her was found the blood of the prophets and of saints and of all who have been slain on earth. That, that this prostitute was the reason for death, was the reason for destruction. That this ungodly world system influenced by Satan has been killing off marriages and families and kids. It's been corrupting leaders and destroying nations and keeping us in the bondage of sin and charging us a price because we chose to pursue our lust apart from God, charging us a price that was crushing. Now imagine you being in the prison of your sin and hearing the angel say, fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. In other words, death and sin have been destroyed. Not just the power of death and sin, but the presence of death and sin. And there's no more death. There's no more sin. It doesn't have to reign over you. The prison doors are open. Maybe now you're starting to see why there was a hallelujah in heaven, that, that people no longer have to fall prey to sin, that there's a day that's coming where sin will no longer destroy our families, our bodies, our nations, or our neighborhoods. This is why God gives this future vision of the fulfilled promise of the victory of Jesus so that today we might be able to praise him, but it's also so that we can remember our mission. And that leads me to the third reason for praise. We praise him because of his character. We praise him because of his conquest, but we praise him also because of his call. Look at verse number six with me. It says, then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder crying out, hallelujah, there goes another hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exalt and give him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. Then I fell down at his feet to worship him. But he said to me, you must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God, for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. John was so overwhelmed by what he had just experienced that he falls down before the angel, the messenger, to give worship and adoration, but the angel rightfully directs him back to God. That's who you should worship. You don't, you don't worship this world system. Babylon has fallen. You don't worship your own lust. No, the Almighty reigns. You worship him. But John, you should also know something else. 
He's inviting you to a wedding. He's inviting you to a wedding feast. This wedding feast is a future feast. It's called the marriage supper of the Lamb. And the scriptures say, in verse number nine, blessed are all those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. This is the ultimate consummation of our union with Christ. The bride are the people of God, and the groom is Jesus. This is the wedding that heaven's been preparing for. And to get an invitation to this is absolutely incredible. You know, I've been studying for preparation for this uh, this message, uh, the royal weddings. I'm not really into the royal family in England. That's just never really been my thing. But my wife and my mother-in-law, who grew up in Ethiopia, which was influenced by by uh, the British, she she really is enamored with it. And so when there's a royal wedding, man, they just cancel everything. They clear their calendar. They'll watch that thing for 24 hours, uh, and I still haven't figured it out yet. But one of the things that I found to be pretty intriguing is at the last royal wedding, it was held in a, in a, in a church that only had 800 seats, 800 seats. That's all who were going to be invited. Now, 530 of those seats went to family members, extended family members, brothers, sisters, nieces, nephews, all of those royals. 530 seats. So that just left 270 seats left. Now, of those, 200 of those seats were going to go to regular, ordinary people who are part of charities that the royal family uh, donated to or supported. Can you imagine what it must have been like to receive an invitation if you were one of those 200 people? I mean, you're going to be hobnobbing with the royal family. You're going to be able to, to sit in the same worship service as some of the national rulers. As a matter of fact, there were heads of states that didn't even get invitations to this. And can you imagine being an ordinary person being invited to this royal wedding? Well, friends, as awesome as that may sound, what we're reading here is far greater what we're reading here is going to be the greatest marriage celebration that history has ever recorded. God spares no expense, but he gives us this charge. It's our responsibility to give the invitation. You know, I think back to my wedding, to my wife, and I think about the planning phase of our wedding. And we spent time on various things. We spent some time trying to select the venue where we would have the wedding, some time on the menu, what we would eat at the wedding. But we spent most of our time on the guest list. The, the, the most time out of all the planning, she spent a lot of time picking her dress. I spent some time picking out my tux and all that stuff. But the most time that we spent was who are we going to invite to this thing? And then we had to make up invitations and we had to get them out so that people can mark the moment. And friends, this is how our time should be allocated. We should be consumed with making the invitation to the marriage supper. It is coming and some people haven't gotten their invitation yet. There are neighbors in your own community that don't know that there's a marriage supper that's coming. 
And all what weeping is going to be if you're not invited. All what joy is going to be if you're invited. And we get to do the invitation. We get to make the call to to men and women in our own families, uh, on our own jobs, in our own neighborhood. Be reconciled to God so that you can be in this joyous moment that's coming. We get to uh, get on planes and go to nations and help our global partners to call villages and communities and cities to the marriage supper of the Lamb, we get to tell people who maybe in this life have known nothing but poverty and brokenness and fallenness that there's a day that's coming where all things are going to be made new and you're going to be clothed in fine linen and you're going to be able to feast and you're going to be sitting next to the royal family Think about that. You and I get to make that that invitation. Praise God for the call of salvation. Praise God for the call, the sovereign call of God that he extends to men and women like you and me who don't deserve it. But praise God, somehow I showed up on the list and I accepted my invitation and I hope you have as well. As a matter of fact, if you're watching this and you haven't accepted your invitation to salvation, your invitation to trust in Jesus, your invitation to grace and mercy, please do it today. But if you got an invitation in your pocket for somebody else, if you got a son or daughter that's not yet following Jesus, a grandchild, a neighbor, a friend, if you're invited to go on a missions trip with Woodside, I, I encourage you, don't hold that, that invitation. The last thing you want to do is show up to this great wedding feast and say, God, there were people I was supposed to invite that I did not invite. Today, I encourage you, make the invitation. This is our mission as a church family. We get the chance to spread the praise of God to our neighbors and to the nations. This is the invitation. So here's the question that I have for you. Who is it that God is calling you to invite to the wedding feast? And have you done it? Over the next several weeks, we're going to really focus in on this. And I want you to make a list. Begin to pray, God, who have you called me to invite to the wedding feast? Because blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Who are you calling me to invite? Make that list and then make the invitation and know that by God's grace, as we do, the Spirit of God will be with us. And we're going to see many men and women come to faith in Jesus and be a part of that future day that will give us and them hope and a reason to praise today. Friends, uh, we're going to be focusing on this tonight as well. So again, I want to encourage you, make sure you're a part of our annual celebration tonight as we talk about how we're going to do this together as a church family, touching our, our neighbors and the nations with the good news of the love and the grace of Jesus. But also, I'm so excited that today we're launching a very special campaign. And your campus pastor is going to talk to you about this. But this campaign has some really awesome initiatives that are a part of it that's going to help us to touch the nations with the gospel. It's one of the most important campaigns that I believe we have ever undertaken to launch churches, to free women from human trafficking, to be able to sponsor theological training in places 
that desperately needed to translate the word of God for people who don't currently have access to the scriptures. This is an awesome initiative that we are launching, and I want you to be a part of this great initiative. Your campus pastor is going to tell you more, but for now, let me pray for us, and please know how much I love you. Let's pray. Father, thank you that we get a chance to praise you as we get a glimpse of what that future day holds, the fulfilled promise of the victory of Jesus. And I pray that today we would not be a people without hope, but we would be grounded in biblical hope, knowing that you are good. Lord, I pray if there's anybody in here that needs to accept their invitation, that they wouldn't leave this moment without doing it. And Lord, help us to uh, be obedient in extending the invite to this call to those who don't know you, that they may share in the same joy we have because of the finished work of Christ on the cross. We trust in you and we love you. It's in Jesus' name I pray, amen and amen. Thank you for joining us as we study God's word together. We would love to hear how God is moving in your heart and get you connected into the Woodside Bible Church family. Head to woodsidebible.org connect to introduce yourself today.